Listener Production. Take it away, my dulcet tone to Donis. <laughs> Hello, Gistners, and welcome back for another episode of award-nominated podcast, Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast that gives you just the gist of what you need to know about a story that we think you'll find interesting enough to share with friends and family at a dinner party. Uh Hello, Rosie Waterland. Hello, Jacob William Stanley. And given that this episode will drop on Friday and then the Australian Podcast Awards are on Saturday... So from tomorrow, we might be very, what I plan to be, ungracious losers. (laughs) I'm going to trump it up. I'm not going to take it well. I'm going to be outraged. I'm going to sue. I'm excited. Uh, I might get on Twitter just to tweet out in all caps, we won by a lot. (laughs) We won by a lot. And we are planning on both dressing up as Moira Rose (laughs) and watching the awards together. So I'm hoping they do like an Emmy Oscars situation where like um, each, because it's all on Zoom, Mm. and so like each nominee you can see them when it's announced because I want to, I mean, obviously I'll be excited if we win, but I want to look outraged if we lose. (laughs) Dressed as Moira. <laughs> so I'm pumped. Oh, uh, you and Felix and I all just storm out in fury. Storm out of the Zoom session. <laughs> Leave meeting. <laughs> robbed. We've been robbed. <laughs> yeah, so that's exciting. That's coming up this week. Um, but it's your topic today and I'd love to know what you're going to be giving me just the gist of. I am going to be giving you the gist of the Olympic Games that was such a shit show. They nearly got the Olympics cancelled forever. <gasps> and yes, this is our first possibly last ever sports themed episode. But do stay with us. <laughs> <laughs> because this is a good one. It is the sporting world's equivalent of the 1989 Oscars, which we all loved hearing <gasps> about. Um, or you could compare it very easily to the Fire Festival. So it's going to be oh. a lot of fun. Before we get into talking about that debacle, though, I imagine you probably have some... Breaking news, breaking news. I got the scoop. I see X-ray, X-ray. Read all about it. Breaking news. You know what's a little bit embarrassing? I've been working out of this office space in um, Adelaide and I just, like, feel like people can see me and are watching me do that, like people who <laughs> don't, don't know. I just got really self-conscious all of a sudden. <laughs> There's all these really serious, like, office business people working here and I'm, like, the random creative girl who comes in with her crazy earrings and is dancing in the booth recording into a microphone. (laughs) Hey, guys. Okay, so the biggest breaking news I want to talk about is something that broke this morning because we're recording Mm. on Tuesday and that's that um, Pete Evans, our just (sighs) least favourite douche of a keto nut job mm. um, was fired from appearing on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here this oh. morning because yesterday he um, posted just completely, like, publicly posted a, like, pro-Nazi meme. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I can't. Okay, so here's what happened. He puts up this meme. And it's a caterpillar in a MAGA hat, Make America Great Again. And he's talking to a butterfly and the butterfly has um, the black sun emblem on its wing, which is um, a known Nazi meme. I think, which one of them designed it? I think it was Goebbels maybe? Uh, Himmler. Or 
It was Himmler. Himmler, Himmler. Mm. Himmler designed it. Um, it is a, it is, it's a symbol that people use today to show that they are, you know, supportive of, believe in mm-hmm. Nazi ideals. Mm-hmm. He posts that meme. Someone commented under the post, oh, um, nice black sun emblem. Mm. And he commented back, yes, I was hoping someone was would notice that's what mm. it was. So he knew exactly what he was posting. Yeah. But then everyone started going, oh, like that's a Nazi meme. You can't. And so then he freaked out a little, I think. And he... Mm took it down and he said, oh, sorry, I don't know the meaning of every symbol in the world. Like, mm. I just thought it was a cute picture of a caterpillar talking to a butterfly. It's like, no, you didn't. No. And so um, yesterday, Pan McMillan, his publishers said that they're ending all contracts with him. Dimmick stores said they're no longer going to stock his books. And it was rumoured that he was going to be on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And it was confirmed this morning that at 6.30am before he was about to go into the jungle or like the Australian bush because it's mm. in Australia this year um he was fired from the show good. and like good 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 mm. good riddance f off he and this isn't new for him like i think if he went on i'm a celeb as just the crazy keto guy who and the crazy anti-vaxer and the crazy i don't believe in covid guy mm. i wouldn't have liked that anyway but i could understand why they'd be like okay well he you know, it's he's divisive and it'd probably mm. get good ratings, like having him espouse his nonsense. But, you know, when he's pro-Nazi, mm. it's like, yeah, if you're going to draw the line somewhere, it's it, 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 it's best to draw it there, yeah. I think. Yeah, it is absolutely yeah. indefensible to give someone like it that is. a platform. Because Absolutely. inch by inch, the whole MAGA Trump movement has been getting closer and closer and closer to the ideals of the Nazi party. I don't even think it's inch by inch. Yeah, I think it's quite overt. Mm. Like, I think it is quite overt. And he, it's crazy. Someone was tweeting this morning. They went back through his Instagram and... Um, He's been posting shit like this for a while. Like somebody had a go at him for putting up some kind of white nationalist meme Mm. and Pete Evans commented underneath, I think you need to do a bit of reading up on the true history of Germany because I've been looking into it and it really changes your perspective. Oh, for God's sake. And it's like, no. And then he also liked another post. This crazy guy went on a rant about how what happened in Germany was actually like Germans just sticking up for themselves because Germans were starving and dying at the hands of corrupt international bankers and everybody Mm. knows that bankers is code for Jewish people when racists Mm. like this are talking about it. So this guy was like, you know, Germans were starving because corrupt international bankers were taking all their money and screwing them over and Germany just had to fight back and protect their people and Pete Evans liked that comment. So he's clearly just gone down some dangerous, scary rabbit holes. And, you know, there's been some Mm. um, really interesting articles and podcast episodes recently about the fact that this wellness stuff has slowly started seeping into right-wing racism. Mm -hmm. Like it's because I think it's something about going down conspiracy rabbit holes about anti-vax and about, Mm. you know, all that. And COVID then leads you down rabbit holes about QAnon, which then leads you down rabbit holes about politics, which then leads you down rabbit holes about Nazis. And before you know it, one day you're drinking a green smoothie and the next day you're posting hell Hitler memes. Like, what? What? 
it seems really, really um, hard to believe, hard to understand. There is a podcast I've been listening to a lot recently that one of our listeners recommended called Conspirituality, and they Mm. take some very, very deep dives into the different ways that people who are involved in yoga and supplements have then sort of ended up on board the Trump MAGA wagon and have started to become more and more and more extreme right wing, and they're able to link it back to a lot of things that happened in the lead up to Nazi Germany emerging Mm. as well. And the Nazis actually were really into yoga and alternative spirituality practices. Alternative spirituality and occult stuff and all that kind of stuff. Like, I think a lot of people don't realise that. It's Mm. a lot of Nazi philosophy is rooted in that kind of thing. But I think Pete Evans is basically the prototype perfect example of someone who's gone on that journey. Mm. And like, for those, because we have quite a lot of international listeners now because we're sort of (laughs) becoming a big deal. For those who don't know who Pete Evans is, in Australia, he was just a chef. He was a famous chef. He hosted this very famous cooking show called My Kitchen Rules and then he kind of started turning keto. So he started publishing all these books about not eating sugar and about going keto and about how turning keto had changed his lifestyle. And everyone was like, okay, fine. But then he just slowly started getting more and more nuts and Mm. saying more and more crazy things to the point where I forget that he even was slash is a chef. Mm. Like it's all just about him being a weird anti-vax MAGA Nazi dude now. I remember when he was on Ready Steady Cook and oh my God, he was I know. still flying Jetstar because I saw him on a flight one time to Fiji <laughs> with his kids. Um, and he was such just a small time, you know, friendly yeah. celebrity. And then he sort of evolved into this monstrous thing who, by the way, I started following on Instagram back earlier in the year when you made the prediction that he was going to go full Off the deep, deep end, end nutbag. Yeah. I stopped following him a few weeks ago because I realized the most important thing that you can do is deplatform these people. Mm. Don't let the information that they're spreading seep into your mind um, unless you're consciously choosing to seek out what it is that they're putting out there for some sort of I don't know research purpose Mm. and I think that that's one of the most important things stop engaging with these people because the more you engage with them the bigger the platform becomes exactly and that's why it's really good that channel 10 decided to boot him because I'm sure it would have been a rating effing bonanza because even though these people say oh I would have boycotted the show if Pete Evans was on it Mm. no they wouldn't have they would have loved to have hate watched that so you know dropping him I'm sure was a bit of a hit to channel 10 but there's no way you can positively spin the publicity on oh he posted pro-nazi memes and we're still having him on the show yeah Mm-mm. You could, yeah, no. I hope he just shrivels up into a Byron Bay ball of dust and dies. <laughs> he sucks. Um, speaking of crazy spirituality, mm. weird MAGA, anti-vax, COVID isn't real, you mm. went to a little thingy and realised 10 minutes in that you were basically at a cult <laughs> meeting and you've got to tell everyone what happened. <laughs> We nearly lost you. We nearly lost you this week. Oh, yes, by the skin of my teeth. Uh, Yeah, a friend and I went to what we thought was going to be a meditation class and when we arrived, um, we were welcomed in a very friendly manner, but then um, after only 10 minutes of meditation, it all just devolved into this sort of stream of consciousness monologue that was delivered by the guy who was supposed to be giving us a class and he started off by talking about the four-day silent retreat that he had just 
done with everyone in the room except for me and my friend and they all talked about (laughs) how incredibly moving and transformative the experience had been for all of them. Um, And then he just continued to ramble and ramble and ramble, talking about basically whatever came to his mind. And the more that he would talk, the more that people would sort of nod emphatically and there was one girl who would actually keep clicking every time he said something that really resonated (gasps) with her in some way. And it was all quite sort of deeply spiritual. But then he started making points about, you know, the government's got it all wrong and they're making the wrong decisions by telling us that we need to be doing things like wearing masks and sanitizing our hands and not hugging Mm -hmm. each other when in actual Uh fact we should be embracing these sorts of principles of philosophy, Buddhism, Hinduism as an alternative. And he was getting such enthusiastic responses from the group. Oh, it was no. really, really, really off-putting. And luckily he told so us So did that you we- stay for the whole session? No, we... We left early, but so it was meant to go for an hour and a half. And I'd said to my friend, look, there's every possibility that at the end of this meditation, he's going to Mm. ask people to share their experience. So just be prepared that that might be what happens. Yeah. So we thought it was going to go for an hour and a half. Once he'd been blabbing on for two hours, I finally (gasps) went, okay, enough is enough. I have to get out of here. Luckily, because he'd said, you're welcome to take notes on your phone if you'd like. And then he told us, I really want you to sit in the front row because it's your first time. We (gasps) were able to sort of sneakily send each other text messages to just sort of coordinate (laughs) our exit and get ourselves out of there. Abort, abort, abort. Which would have been really, really difficult had we not because it was like he was staring at us the whole time. And it also felt, I can really understand why some people, when they go into that environment, they just sort of feel that group pressure to conform and to sort of act in the way that everyone around them is acting. And so if everyone else is nodding, you sort of do feel this compulsion to just nod, even Mm. if you don't agree with what it is that's being said. So when you say it was a meditation, it sounds like it was more like a sermon. Like he- he, Correct. Was he walking you through a guided meditation? No, he was just talking at you. Exactly. And he was making it up as he went along. And he acknowledged that up front, (laughs) that he was just going to talk about whatever it was that jumped into his mind. So it was incredibly difficult to follow and try to decipher what sort of message he was putting out there. Um, But it was just so clear that no matter what it was he said, everyone in that room was going to agree with him. And you could see that they were having this deep sort of resonating understanding and appreciation of what it was that he was putting out there. It was such a strange thing. Jim Jones. Sounds like Jim Jones. Yeah, yeah. Just scary, a- weird. Keith Raniere. Mm-hmm. Really small scale, but you could really see how he had this compelling control over these people and was getting them to come along to these retreats with him and then come along to these classes again. How did you even find out about it? Did you just see like a flyer at Woolworths? Like, how did you find out about (laughs) it? My friend saw it on Facebook and she just thought it'd be a really good idea for us to go along. And it did seem like a meditation class in the week of the US election seemed like exactly what I needed. Instead, it just showed me how groupthink can really seep in very, very easily. In particular, in these sorts of um, spiritual, you would think, left-wing groups. There are people I know in my life who would go to that and be completely sucked in by the end of the session. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I won't say their names, but I'm... (laughs) There are people I know who would fall for that shit, would walk out of that going, I'm into this, when's the next retreat? Let's do it. Like, yes, we both know so, those people. Yeah, depends mm. on your brain, I guess, but uh, mm. woofed. Um, the only other breaking news I have today is that um, there's a mouse 
on the loose in my house. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, here's what happened. Last night, Boo, um, he's never done this before, ever. Mm. I was sitting on the couch, I was watching TV, Caleb got up to get a drink and all of a sudden he goes... Ew, Boo's got a mouse. And I went, no, he doesn't. Like, I thought he was just being a dickhead. He goes, Rosie, Boo has got a mouse. And I turned around and Boo had, uh, because we have a little cat door, so he goes in the backyard, so he must have caught a mouse outside. Mm. And he brought it in and he, like, dropped it at our feet because he was so proud of it because that's Mm. what cats do. They want to, like, show you what they've done. And he was, like, playing. It was dead and he was, like, playing with it and, like, it was so disgusting. And so I was screaming and Caleb was screaming. This is dead. And, like, Boo kept, like, flicking it around. Like, he, he was having the time of his life. Mm. So in the end, I finally got a paper towel and picked it up by its tail and went and put it in the auto bin and shut the lid. <laughs> and then literally 10 minutes later, we hear Boo come back inside. There's another mouse. And we were like, did he get that from the bit? Like, we were like, did he get that from the bin? Uh. And we was so and so I went outside and checked in the bin. No, mouse number one, still dead in the bin. Uh. So he went and got a fresh mouse. <laughs> and so he's playing with it again. I'm screaming. I'm like, ah! And like we just assumed it was dead. And I got really stressed. I was like, Caleb, Caleb, please get rid of it. I'm going to bed because I was so tired. Yeah. And so I sort of went off to bed and Caleb's like trying to get this mouse off Boo. And then all of a sudden, Caleb goes, it's alive! And the mouse that we thought was dead ran off and ran behind the bookcase. And I'm in bed at this point and Caleb's going, Rosie, come and help me get this mouse. And I was like, no, I'm in bed. And he's like, come and help me. And I was like, come on, Caleb. I said, if it's there, like, Boo will kill it. In the night, Boo will kill it. Like, Mm. there's no point us trying to get it. Boo will get it. And so we just, like, decided to leave it. Caleb was not happy about it. And then this morning I get up and go out to the living room, check behind the bookcase, mouse isn't there, it's gone. So it's run off somewhere, but it's also nowhere else in the house. And we lock the cap door at night so Boo couldn't have taken it outside. Mm. And so all we know is that there is a mouse, alive or dead, somewhere in the house. (laughs) And because of the current uh, little breakout of uh, COVID in Adelaide at the moment. Caleb has to work from home this week. And when I left this morning, he was beside himself. Like he was (laughs) looking under the fridge. He was looking under the couch. He was upending all the furniture. He was like, he just kept going, I'm not bloody, I'm not bloody happy about this. I'm not bloody happy about this. There's a mouse. There's a mouse on the loose in the house. You know how he talks. It's outrageous. So, um, yes, there's a mouse on the loose in the house. Uh, we don't know where it is. Or it's just started decomposing somewhere. That's what, well, we said it's one of two things. It's either on the loose and we're going to find a live mouse somewhere or in a few days something's going to start to smell. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to have to figure out where this dead rotting mouse is. So. Oh, gross. <laughs> The current chapter of my adventures in Adelaide. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that's sort of it for breaking news, really. Oh, the I mean, joys there's a possible of coup, a cat. Possible government coup going on in America, but I just thought you needed to know about my cat bringing in dead mice. <laughs> because I decide what the important headlines are. <laughs> it's my breaking uh, news. And, and with that. No one else. No one else. <gasps> Was a breaking news.
That was it. Thank you very much. I'm excited to hear about this train wreck of an Olympics because i got to say I'm not at all interested in sport, but I do love a shit show. Yes. So <laughs> I feel like this is going to be right up my alley. Yeah, it's a good one, whether you like sport or not. And trust me, I'm like Rosie and not a sports fan. No. So don't I'm partake. Calling- I don't... I don't partake in the movement of bodies and the and the passing of balls and things. Mm. You've enjoyed watching really some nice. AFL since you've been in Adelaide, though, no? Well, that's true. Yes, I did watch the semi-final and the grand final, and I sort of didn't hate it because I finally had someone explain to me the rules, which I still don't entirely understand, but... Um, like I've said before, it really is just the equivalent of one of those blow-up crazy arm <laughs> men outside car dealerships and it's just 20 of those hurling balls at each other. But anyway, that's sort of, that's all I've really, that's it. But, that's um, all I would care to know and if you live overseas, that's all you need to know really. That's all you need to know about Australian <clears throat> football rules. But um, mm-hmm. anyway, so we're not sport lovers but I'm into, I'm into this failure. I'm, I love public failure. Okay. This Schadenfreude. Is a big one. Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. Uh, all right. Yes. I'm calling this one Run for Your Life, the 1904 St. Louis Olympic Dumpster Fire, which, as I mentioned, <laughs> it nearly ended the Olympic movement altogether before it had even really begun. At this point, mm. 1904, the Olympics was very much in its startup phase. It wasn't even 10 years old yet. Um, oh, St. Okay. Louis was only the third city to host the modern Olympics, um, and it was an absolute Fuster cluck. The entire And St. Louis St. Louis, sorry, is that in the US? The St. Louis like as Uh, in meet me in St. Louis? Yes, correct. St. Louis is the capital city, I believe, of Missouri, which is one of the states Ah. that's sort of in the middle. They call it the gateway to the west, um, because Mm. it's sort of in right in the middle of that Midwest area and all the major railway lines go through there. Still not a major city though. On the global scale. Okay. But just a little town, in little city in the US. Pretty much, yeah. Quite obscure and not a lot of people knew where it was. Yeah. The festival as a whole was quite a disaster, but the very worst element of the whole thing was the main event, the marathon. So I want to start off by describing what (gasps) happened there. Then once I've gone through Mm. the marathon, I'll give you a bit more context about the Olympic festival as a whole for that year. Okay. The vision was that at every Olympic Games, the marathon was going to be the centrepiece because out of all the events, it was the one that had the most historical significance. The whole point of having a marathon was as a tribute to the ancient Greek Olympics. And did you do classical Greek history back in high school? No, I did. Oh, shit. Did I? Oh, sorry, Miss Brady. That's my high school history teacher. No, we did Rome. Uh Uh-huh. We didn't do Greece. So, for those of us who learnt about Greek history, we learnt that a guy called Philippides had run all the way from Marathon to Athens, a distance about 40 kilometres, to tell Uh the Athenian politicians that the Greek army had just defeated the Persians at war. So, they ran this 40-kilometre marathon in tribute to him. So, it was this symbolic link to history, but... If you remember the story correctly, Philippides was supposed to have dropped dead at the end of running the marathon <laughs> once he told oh, people no. that they'd won. So it was kind of a weird way to nod to Leave Greek that tradition. Part out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's do the thing that killed this guy. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of apt at St. Louis because almost all of the runners dropped dead at the end of it oh, because no. it was so poorly organised. So I'll start by giving you a bit of context about the conditions. The race was scheduled yeah. for 3pm, middle of the afternoon, yeah. on the 30th of August, so coming towards the tail end of summer, when it was 32 yeah. degrees Celsius. Today, we know you should not run a marathon at anything over 20 degrees Celsius. Mm. And the track that they had to run was to begin with five laps around the stadium, then they had to go out and run around the St. Louis city, then out to the burbs, and then out into the rural areas where they had to go up mm-hmm. and down seven very steep hills on unpaved mm. dirt roads, because there were hardly any sealed roads at that time, mm. that cars were driving on. So it was super, super dusty and there were lots of loose rocks and trip hazards. So it was really more of an obstacle course than a running track. <laughs> And there were bugs everywhere. And so only 40 runners actually showed up on the day. And of those 40, eight of them just said, absolutely not. This is nonsense. I'm pulling out before we begin. This is just too much. I would die. And so then they only had 32 people who were willing to start the race, representing four countries. The USA was represented by 19 of those 32 Great Britain Uh was represented by three guys who were there from South Africa. They hadn't come for the Olympics. They just happened to be in Missouri (laughs) because We could run long distances. Yeah, (laughs) they knew they could (laughs) because they'd been in the Boer War and they were long distance Ah. dispatch runners um, and they were there to be part of the World's Fair and they'd heard that there was this race going on. So they went, sure, I'll show up. They showed up barefoot as well because that's the way that they were used to running mm, yeah. back home in Africa. Imagine if that's how the Olympics was now. You're just in in the city at the time and you're like, oh, yeah, I think I'm pretty good at that. Yeah, I'll <laughs> give it a shot. Why not? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and actually nine men came to represent Greece and that was exactly the situation for them. They weren't runners at all. None of them had ever Mm. run a marathon before, but they were living in the USA at the time and their Greek families back home told them, you need to go and represent your country. This is a matter of national pride because the marathon is a Greek event and the Olympics are a Greek festival. All of this should be happening in Greece, not in Missouri. So we need to make sure that there's some sort of Greek representation there in this race at the very least. So they just showed up. And of course they were destined to fail, but they decided they were just going to give it a shot. (laughs) My favorite though, and I think you'll love him too, is um, a guy who was representing Cuba. His name is Felix Carvajal. And he was just a poor, humble mailman who used to run all of his mail routes. And he wanted desperately to go to the Olympics one day. That was his dream. So he raised himself a bunch of money to get to the States by running from one end of the island of Cuba to the other, which in itself is very, very impressive. And he Mm. was a teeny tiny little man, the shortest in the race by far. He was only five foot tall, which is 1.5 metres, basically. Mm. How tall are you? I'm 5'4", so he's four inches shorter than me. Yeah. Yeah. So very, very petite. And he had this beautiful sculpted handlebar moustache. When he showed up to represent (laughs) Cuba in the race, he was wearing long pleated trousers and knee-length black socks, a formal white dress shirt buttoned up and tucked (laughs) in at the waist, and these wooden-soled dress shoes and his beret. No, you can't run so in wooden cute. soles. No. no but it was, you need Nike Air Maxes. <laughs> it was all he had, though, because 
he'd got a boat over from Havana a few days before the race. Mm. And when he arrived in New Orleans, he wanted to start partying as soon as possible. So he began the celebrations, got very drunk, started gambling, lost all of his money in a game of craps, and then passed (sighs) out while he was unconscious. Someone stole all of his things. So he had nothing in the world but the outfit that he was wearing, but he was still determined he was going to run that marathon. And he decided he was going to walk slash hitchhike to St. Louis over the next couple of days, which is a Mm -hmm. distance of 1,100 kilometres. So that's longer than going from Sydney to Brisbane to get to this race. Oh, well, that's impressive that he made it there. Very impressive. And I'm sure it would have been exhausting for him as well. He got there just in time wearing the outfit that I described and still willing to race, even though everyone was looking at him and saying, you cannot run (laughs) in that outfit and certainly not those shoes. But no one had any spares that would fit him because he was so small. So the only option that they had, yeah, he was a tiny man. They had to just cut off his um, legs of his trousers to turn them into shorts. Um, He still wore the full length knee socks pulled all the way up though. I will post a picture of him on my Instagram because it is just so (laughs) adorable. And it was game on for him. He He was ready to commence. No, he has a very happy ending. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. He's safe. What's his name? Felix. What's his name again? Felix Felix is safe. Felix is safe. Okay. All right. (laughs) Keep going. So, four countries, 32 runners, only 14 of them finished. And of the 18 who did not finish, most of them had to be hospitalised. One of them was disqualified for cheating. Let's talk about what happened to them. So... The first person who quit on the track was the guy who was the overall favourite. His name was John Lorden, and because he'd won the Boston Marathon in 1903, everyone just assumed that this race was his. So he went into it very overconfident. Before the race began, he was telling reporters he'd never felt better in his life and he was certain he was going to win the first gold medal for America. He Mm -hmm. started off running probably a bit too quickly. He got a very big lead when he did the five laps of the stadium. Uh, Then he got out into the city. He made it two blocks distance before the heat stroke got him and he doubled over, (gasps) started vomiting very, very violently and just had to say, I'm out. This is absolute garbage. It is way too hot and humid and take me to hospital, please, because I don't feel right. Then the second favourite was the guy who was coming up behind him, a guy from San Francisco called William Garcia. He did manage to complete nearly half of the marathon before he then very dramatically collapsed and started coughing up blood. He had to be (gasps) rushed to hospital where they inspected him and figured out that it was because his esophagus was completely coated in this really coarse dust. And also he'd swallowed so much of the dust that was being kicked up on the track. Oh, like just... Breathing it in. Yeah, breathing it in and then swallowing the stuff that was in his mouth. His stomach was hemorrhaging Ah. and he was bleeding internally and he was minutes away from death. And luckily they were able to save his life, but he was on death's doorstep. So this is like, because in normal marathons, there's all that footage you can look up on YouTube and stuff of just the act of running 40 kilometres is 
horrific on your mm. body. And you can look up footage of marathon runners literally shitting themselves as they're mm-hmm. running along the track or mm-hmm. like at some, even an experienced marathon runner will get to a certain point and their body literally just collapses into a ball of jelly and they yep. can't walk anymore. Like, so that is stuff that just happens in a normal marathon. But this, there's so there's that combined with the fact this is a logistical disaster. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So, oh my goodness. Very, very, very poorly planned. Um, I mean, the weather conditions were one thing, but then the fact that they were running on these dusty roads, which were not closed off at all, which meant that oh, anyone no. could drive up and down the roads, whether they were a looky-loo spectator who wanted to come and have a, a glance at the runners as they went yeah. by, um, or they also just had standard you know, farmers in trucks taking their hogs to market. Move out of the effing way. (laughs) So they were dodging traffic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, okay. No one knew or cared about the Olympics, to be honest. So there were just these weird people out for a run with numbers (laughs) on their front and back for some reason. Um, Anyway, so they were just two of the casualties that were knocked out in the early stages. Fifteen other people collapsed before they got to the end. Um, But I skipped them because I want to talk about the people who actually did cross the finishing line, starting with the first one to get over the finishing line, which was a guy called Fred Laws. He came from New York City and he was a bricklayer by day who used to just run at night for fun. It was his hobby. And he saw an ad in the New York Times that was calling for people to come and please compete at the St. Louis Olympic Marathon. They were desperate to get competitors because there was very, very little interest. (laughs) (laughs) He saw this ad on the 6th of August and it said that there was going to be an 11-kilometre race to audition some runners. That race was going to be happening on the 13th of August. And the But that's top- only a quarter of a marathon. How does exactly. that find people who can do a marathon? It was all they had time to rustle up of imagining. Mm, and they okay, figured yeah. you, because they were running out of time, they probably didn't want to get people to run a marathon before they then go and run a marathon because it takes quite a while to recover um, from it. Yeah. Sure. Don't try to make sense of a lot of this because it's yeah, all just, just so yeah. silly. It's like, oh, can can you do one? Can you walk a regular distance? Oh, that means you can run a marathon. Like, because eleven kilometers is not a huge like blank like distance, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they said that they would accept the top eight who finished that race were going to get an all expenses paid trip to go to St. Louis to compete in the Olympic marathon on the 30th of August. So most people who read that ad saw, okay, that's a really tight timeline. And I don't think that I have enough time to train. So only 19 people showed up to run that race. And sure enough, Fred Mm. was one of them. And he was one of the first eight to cross the finishing line. And so they'd sent him off to St. Louis so he could run this marathon just a few days later. And when he entered, yes, he knew that he could run 11 kilometers, but he'd Mm -hmm. never in his life run 40 kilometers straight. So Mm. he got 14 Ks into the marathon and then he had no choice but to give in to exhaustion and cramps. And he just said, I quit. And he jumped into one of the cars that was monitoring the runners on the Uh, course. And they started driving back towards the stadium. On the way, he was not trying to hide himself in shame at all. He was waving to spectators and he would actually lean out the window and cheer on other runners as well to try to encourage them because they were his friends. 
And then the car Yet broke down. Yet he becomes down. the winner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so okay. you can probably piece together what's going to happen here. The car broke down after driving for another 18 Ks and Fred was yeah. feeling better by this time. And he did the maths and realised there's only eight kilometres to go. I could probably run that. And he said he wanted to get back and see who won the race and celebrate with his friends. But as he got closer and closer to the stadium, more and more people started to cheer for him because they assumed (laughs) that he was the winner. And And he kind of liked it. Oh, yeah. He was getting off on it, especially (laughs) when he got into the stadium and the crowd erupted because all of the crowd (gasps) were Americans. And for them to see an American winner, they were absolutely elated. So (laughs) he ran the final lap of the stadium and then he burst triumphantly through the finishing line and just accepted all of the applause and congratulations (laughs) from everyone for winning the race. Oh, my God, I love him. He (laughs) deserves to win. (laughs) Uh, He just sort of went, okay, I'm going to go with it and see how long this lasts. It lasted to the point where the daughter of the president, President Roosevelt's (gasps) daughter, Alice, P.S., the president didn't bother going all the way to St. Louis. He just sent his daughter. (laughs) Um, She placed an olive wreath on his head as the champion and she was just about to give him the gold medal when a couple of the the spectators who'd been out on the road got back to the stadium and said, "Um, excuse me, we saw him in a car just (laughs) before we got here. Um, And so... He just sort of laughed it off. And then he's just going, off. you got, you got yes, me. exactly. <laughs> he kind of just went, aha, gotcha. I was kidding. Well, you fell I for mean, it. I mean, to be, to be fair, he just, he just went with it. Yeah. Like, he just went with it. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Oh, my God. You know what? That reminds me of um, the footage was going again, around again recently on Twitter of um, this guy in England who was going into the BBC to interview to be like a like accountant <laughs> or data analyst or yeah. something. And because they were expecting a guest of the same ethnicity, they mixed up like, and so they yeah. had similar names. They literally took this guy and said, okay, they mic'd him up, put him on a seat in studio in front of cameras and then started recording live and this BBC host started asking him some really complicated <laughs> questions about things he knew nothing about and his face, you can see he's just kind of like, well, I suppose I better go with this. Yeah. And so he just starts answering the questions <laughs> and, like, trying to, like, instead of going, no, I'm here to interview to be, he just went with it. Why not? Just go with it, man. Yes. Uh, that is the friend you, laws full you, of thinking. I know, you walk into a stadium, people are cheering, calling you a winner. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Play the hand you dealt. <laughs> um, exactly. When he was called out, he just sort of laughed about it and said, look, I'm just a prankster who pulled a prank. I wouldn't have actually accepted the medal. Of course not. This was all just to yeah, have a right. bit of a laugh. Ha, ha, ha. Um, not a lot of people believed him. They were outraged. So he was instantly banned from ever competing in any athletic event ever again, mm-hmm. which, of course, he appealed the next year because he was able to easily prove that he was just a funny guy pulling a funny prank. Mm-hmm. And the very next year, he went on to win the Boston Marathon. And I'm sure we can all be 100% certain that he did not cheat at all, even though <laughs> yeah. a lot of us probably yeah, know right. that the Boston <laughs> Marathon has a really strong history of cheats. So, 
He made it, but not really. He did technically cross the finishing line. He just didn't run the yes. full 40Ks. Yep. Yeah, okay. Disqualified. So then the guy who actually did win was a guy called Thomas Hicks, and he crossed the finishing line 15 minutes after Fred. When I say crossed, he didn't run. He was basically dragged over it because he was oh. barely, barely alive yeah. when he won that race. Like all of the runners, he was really suffering from dehydration. Um, yeah. Along the 40-kilometre route, there were only two water stations. At mile six, oh, there was what? a water tower. And at mile 12, there was a well where you could go and self-serve with a bucket and drink water <laughs> out of the ground, which, of course, was quite unclean and ended up being like poison to most oh, of the runners. Um, and this was not just an oversight. This was actually very intentional. They wanted to make sure that the runners did not have access to water because the organiser mm. of the games wanted to test the limits of human endurance by experimenting with <gasps> purposeful dehydration. This was an idea that was in fashion at the time, this notion that you could perform better if you weren't being weighed down by too much water in your body. This was a scientific belief at the time that they wanted to test out. So they weren't just, like, having the marathon as part of the Olympics. They were also using it as a way to do experiments on people. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And some of these runners were willing participants in that experiment. Some of them actually did not know. So they were expecting that mm. there would be more water along the course than there actually ended up being. So okay. obviously very, very dangerous, but the runners and the trainers were all encouraged, don't drink water, and then they made sure that there wasn't even access to water for them. So Thomas Hicks yeah. hadn't had a single drop for hours and hours. He kept pace quite well for the first 24 kilometres, but then at that point when he still had 16 k's to go, he just couldn't go any further and he tried to stop and lie down. He was begging for some water, but the trainers mm. just wouldn't let him stop and they wouldn't let him drink. Mm. The solution that they came up with was just to wipe out his mouth with a sponge that had been soaked in some warm water to sort of give him the illusion that he'd been drinking and also to try to clear some of the dirt out of his mouth. It seems weird to me that, like... If the Olympics are new and they're excited that they've got them, why do they seem to care more about the experiment than they do about, like, successfully getting people over the finish line or successfully finishing the race? It's really a matter of the wrong people being put in charge of organising the okay. event in totality. Um, yeah, right. So I'll talk a little bit more about a guy called James Sullivan and how he got roped into this, but it was his notion yeah. from the very top that we should try to see just how beneficial purposeful dehydration can be because he was the one that had it in his head that that was the key to unlocking human performance. Right. Okay. So after they'd wiped out his mouth with a warm sponge, they then gave him his go-go juice and his go-go juice, go -go juice, it's a mixture of raw egg whites for protein with a little dash of strychnine and what's strychnine it's most commonly used as rat poison <gasps> and 
it can be used as human poison because a certain dose can be lethal in humans. Back in this day, they were using strychnine as a stimulant that's sort of like caffeine plus nicotine plus taurine equals strychnine. Like a small dose will get all of your muscles firing and it actually stops your muscles from stopping. So it's like you enter this kind of manic state. They'd mixed this strychnine into these egg whites, forced it down Thomas Hicks's throat and it worked. And this was a common thing back then. They were using rat poison as a stimulant to help people perform better in athletic events. They're like stage moms. Like, you know how Honey Boo Boo's mom used to give her, what does she call it? Her special juice juice or her go-go juice. And it was like Red Bull mixed with sugar mixed with something else. Mm. So then Honey Boo Boo would be like, I'm already like... They're mm. like stage moms, but yeah. for marathons. Completely. And it works. If you don't finish this, you're not going to get your Barbie. <laughs> he was that completely kind of under their control at this point because he was just sort <gasps> of this awful. floppy puppet that they could do whatever they wanted with him. And they were all determined that they were going to get him to win this race no matter what. So they, they kept dosing him along the way because they could see that it was perking him back up. So he was having more and more egg whites with rat poison. Then towards the mm. end to really ramp it up a notch, they started adding a dash of brandy into the mix <laughs> as well. And so unsurprisingly, he started hallucinating and he was crying and collapsing. And so his trainers had to be one on each side, holding him up by the armpits. And they just shuffled him along the rest of the way, literally oh. operating. Operating oh him like a puppet until they got him to the finishing line. And despite but how all of is this. That, that means he didn't do it himself. Exactly. Like, <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. Dragged over the finishing line, but he was the first one to complete the full 40 kilometres. And so he won the gold medal. But of course, he couldn't stick around and receive the medal and the adulation. He had to be rushed to hospital immediately because he was very literally oh dying. Um, He did recover and the next day he announced that he was retiring from running forever, (laughs) which was very sensible. But he was very vocal about um, how bad the race had been organised and was very Mm. critical of the people who'd put this event together. And so then in retaliation, James Sullivan, the organiser, told newspapers that he was really surprised that Hicks won because he really wasn't that good a runner. That made... Thomas Hicks, super determined to prove to the world that he was actually a very worthy winner, even though he'd been drugged Mm. and dragged over the finishing line. Um, (laughs) So he did, in fact, get back on the track and he went on to win a Chicago marathon in 1906. And we don't know how much strychnine he was taking at the time, um, but we can probably assume that there was some sort of stimulant involved. Yes. Uh, Then the next two people to cross the finishing line who got the silver and the gold medal were a couple of American guys. They were in a pretty bad way, but I'm going to skip them because I want to get to tell you about Felix Carvajal. Felix! How did little Felix go? He ended up coming in fourth and he probably could have done a little bit better if he'd remained a little bit more focused on actually running the race. He was easily distractible. What did he... Oh, my God, tell me. Just tell me. (laughs) I love him. Um, So sweet baby Felix just couldn't help himself from being very chatty and gregarious along the way. He just kept stopping to have a chat with spectators because he was just so excited to be in the United States and competing in the marathon. So it was like he had to stop and say thank you to all the spectators who'd come out to witness the event (laughs) that day. 
at one point he stopped and had a chat to some people who were in a parked car and he saw that they were eating fruit while they were watching the race. So he asked if he could have some because he was still very hungry from his journey from New Orleans. Mm, And they said no. So he just sort of cheekily snatched two peaches from them and ran off um, eating the peaches while he was jogging along. The peaches, though, just made him more hungry. You know, when you start eating and it just makes you want to eat more. And he noticed that he was running past an apple orchard and he decided to take a little detour, go in there and get himself some apples. Now, he's our only source here. No one else Mm. witnessed this, but he says he went in, picked up some apples off the ground, ate them while he was running didn't realise that they were rotten until they made him cramp up in his tum-tum. And so he said that he had to take a little nap, lie down, let the effects of the cramps just pass. But as you mentioned, yes, it's very, very common for marathon runners to get what's called a brown medal where along the track (laughs) they have no control over their bowels. It's something to do with the blood supply to the digestive system being cut off. And so the bowels just want to evacuate. That happens to two thirds of long distance runners in the middle of a race. You got to look it up on YouTube, guys. There are compilations of this (laughs) and it's really (laughs) funny to watch. (laughs) Yes. So I think we can assume that that's what happened to little Felix, but he was just too much of a gentleman to say that he'd had to go and have a movement in the forest. So instead, he told people that he had to go and have a nap. Um, Right. Anyway, he didn't get a medal, but Cuba was very, very proud of him. And I do have a bit more to tell you about Felix at the end of this episode because his story's not finished. But after Felix crossed the finishing line, there were a couple more Americans to come along. And then in ninth place came a guy from South Africa, one of the performers in the World's Fair that I'd mentioned, Lean Tao. Yeah. And when he finished the race, he was pissed because he explained to everyone that shortly after he'd gone out of the stadium, he was chased down by a group of angry, obviously racist dogs that chased him for at least a mile off course. And then he had to run all these extra kilometers to try to find the track again because he'd got completely lost because the track was really sort of convoluted. So he- when you say racist dogs, do you mean like horrible people? No, I or mean actual-, actual dogs that had very How likely been trained racist? because he was black. Um, a lot of landowners had trained their dogs. Remember, this is the early 1900s um, to chase off any black people that they see. Mm -hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. So I guess there's a bit of speculation there, but it wasn't uncommon at all that people would train their dogs in that way. I thought you were just saying like, those people are dogs. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, they're racist, so they are. Yeah, the racists had trained their dogs to be racist. Yes, gotcha, gotcha, Um, gotcha. So there was some speculation that he probably actually could have won the marathon with the time that he finished and the extra distance that he won. He kind of could be the winner, but no one cared enough to do anything about it. Um, And then after lean, another five competitors finished. They were all in pretty bad shape, which is to be expected after any marathon. But this was a lot more than your standard chafed nipples and Mm. missing toenails. There was some very Mm. serious dehydration and respiratory issues. And so the blame was put squarely on the event organisers because all of the races said that they'd never run on anything that was as terrible as that. But James Sullivan, the organiser, distanced himself completely and said, look, 
the marathon is just an inherently dangerous event. This is not my fault. I did the best that I could. I just recommend mm. that no one ever runs a marathon ever again. Make them illegal. illegal. I'm not guilty of anything wrong. Well, yeah, because that's why I asked before, like, there are things like marathons are notoriously dangerous and they decimate people's bodies and it is a really horrific often thing for people to go through. But this also had the added stuff of this guy effing up big time right. in organising it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But of course nice he, try, <laughs> he wasn't going to accept responsibility. Yes, um, of course. So marathon... 1904 St. Louis has kind of gone down in history as the worst event at the worst Olympics ever. So mm-hmm. let's unpack how this all sort of happened. And it is mostly because of James Sullivan, but he's only a part of the story. So like I'd said, this was only the third modern Olympic Games. The first one had happened in 1896, and that was a very big mm-hmm. success. It was organised by a French guy called Pierre de Coubertin, and he created the International Olympic Committee, and he had this vision for a Games that was inspired by the ancient Olympics, which had captured his fascination when he was a kid, because while he yeah. was growing up, they were excavating Olympia at the foot of Mount Olympus. Uh, yes. And so they yeah. were discovering more and more about this incredible festival that had happened for two weeks every four years over the course of 1,200 years that had only been Mm -hmm. shut down by the Romans a little while ago relatively because of the fact Mm -hmm. that they thought it was so um, pagan and anti-Christian. So he wanted to get it up and running again because he saw it as a way that could unify the world, the way that the um, ancient Olympics had unified Greece for a short period of time. Uh, Now, it made sense to have the first modern Olympics in Athens and the Greeks Mm -hmm. actually wanted to have it there forever ongoing, but Pierre was determined Mm. that he was going to, at some point, as soon as possible, have the Games in his hometown of Paris. So he arranged for the second Olympic Games to happen in Paris in 1900 and that was a bit of a flop itself. The (laughs) facilities were terrible. The sprinting track wasn't flat at all. The (laughs) hurdles were made out of old telegraph poles that they just went and chopped (gasps) down. Stop it! (laughs) The swimming races uh, were held in the Seine River, which on one hand, disgusting and polluted and vile. On the other hand, they were swimming with the current, which meant that a whole lot of people set these incredible new world (laughs) records, which had to be totally invalidated because they were being swept along by the river. Um, And then I think my favourite thing is that the discus and hammer throwers were literally throwing their hammers and frisbees into trees because the stadium had an orchard in it and they hadn't created enough space (laughs) For people to throw so their is, things. So this is definitely Firefest vibes. Like yeah. this is like, let's throw this together and see and just see how it goes. Yeah. So Pierre had this vision and the Greeks had done it so well in Athens and he thought that Paris was going to come through and do a really good job, but they completely let him down. And so he had Mm -hmm. to redeem himself and that was when he thought, okay, we should really give the games to the United States next because the Americans have been very enthusiastic about these games from the very beginning and I think they could Mm -hmm. take it to the next level. So he actually chose 
Chicago to be the next host city for the Olympic Games. At that point, Chicago was the fifth biggest city in the world and it was a very exciting international hub and a lot of people were wanting to go and see Chicago because there were all these amazing architectural innovations that were happening Mm. there. And Pierre sort of put all his hope in Chicago, reinvigorating the Olympic movement after Paris had sort of let him down. But... Folks in St. Louis were really, really annoyed when they found out that Chicago had got the Olympic event at the same time that St. Louis was going to be hosting the World's Fair, which was meant to be the really big deal event that was going to put them on the map. Back then, the way that we think about the Olympics is the big global event that comes around every few years. That's Mm. the way that they saw the World's Fair. So the organisers of... And so, and it's kind of like, you know, St. Louis to Chicago, it's kind of like... I don't know, let's say Wagga Wagga to Sydney and Wagga Wagga being like, don't take away our big thing. <laughs> don't like, steal come on. our thunder, yes. Yeah, like we're, we're finally going to get some people here. Yeah, okay. Yes, that's a very, very good comparison. And so... Yeah. Um, They had a little tanty and said, if you go ahead and run the Olympics in Chicago at the same time as our fair, we're going to run our own athletic tournament and make it the USA national titles. So all of the American athletes come to our event instead of your event. So Mm -hmm. Pierre de Coubertin was sort of over a barrel and he yielded and said, all right, fine, St. Louis, you can have the Olympics. And they decided- St. Louis. (laughs) giving the Olympics to Wagga Wagga yeah. instead of Sydney. Like, no offence, Wagga Wagga. I was born in Tumut, so I'm allowed <laughs> to pay you out. But seriously, it is. It's a very apt comparison because it's not even a convenient location for people no, to get to. No, it's out of the way. Yeah. It's, it's hot. It's, yeah. okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then it sort of fell to the organisers of the World's Fair to also organise the Olympics at the same time, mm-hmm. which was something they were certainly not set up to do. So they found this guy mm. called James Sullivan and they figured, look, he'll be good enough to set up as the chief organiser for this thing, even though all of his experience was just in publishing or business management, certainly not in event coordination. And he only had yeah. a tangential relationship to athletics as well. Um and so that is a big, big part of why it became such a firefest <sighs> type shit show. Overly confident, cocky men. Exactly. Yes. Thinking they can do things they aren't qualified to do. Yeah. He, and they just decided to go ahead and give it a crack. Now, no surprise, no one wanted to go to St. Louis, Missouri. Um, No athletes, (laughs) no spectators wanted to travel Mm -hmm. all that way. It was in the middle of nowhere. It was far too expensive and it was going to be going on for five months as well. So to take five months out of your life to go and take part in this event was ludicrous. Um, even Were they holding Pierre, one event a week? <laughs> they were spacing it out as best they could. Because the World's Fair was going to last for seven months, they wanted to use the Olympics oh, as a draw okay. card to get people coming sure. back again and again and again to the World's Fair. Um, because Pierre de Coubertin was sort of annoyed about the whole situation, he couldn't be bothered going to St. Louis and basically just said, I don't predict it's going to be very good. It was his (laughs) event, but he didn't go because it was so far out of the way and it was such a mediocre town in his mind. Um, And of the athletes who ended up competing, of course, Mm. 90% of them were from the USA. Of the other 10%, 
more than half of them came from Canada. So ultimately there were only 12 (laughs) countries that participated. And like I said before, most of those countries were only represented because there was someone from that country who happened to already be be in America. (laughs) (laughs) So great. Now, Australia was represented, but at the time, as far as they knew, it was only one athlete that was representing them. He, this is so firefest. He turned up and he was absolutely shocked to find out that they hadn't organised any accommodation for him whatsoever. And they basically <gasps> just said, you're going to have to go find yourself a tent somewhere, which is exactly <gasps> what he did. That is firefest. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he had some really choice things to say when he got back to Australia. Um, what was his event? Uh, he was a hurdler and he didn't even oh, make it to win? the finals. No. Oh, no. Probably because he didn't a get loser. a good night's sleep in his tent. Yeah. <laughs> he just needed a bed. <laughs> okay. Most of the events only had American athletes in them, and so they would consciously choose to double up and say, okay, so this will be the Olympic event and the US national title just rolled into one for the sure. sake of efficiency. Okay. Um, but even Americans didn't really care very much, and it was really hard for them to get people to come and compete in the yeah. games at all, which is why they were advertising in New York saying, just come and run a relatively short race and we'll pay for you to come and run the marathon in the Olympics. So the US ended up winning 240 of the 280 medals that were awarded at those games. Mm -hmm. Um, And just fun fact here to sort of bump up their medal tally as well. This is where they first introduced the gold, silver, bronze medals Uh, for the first two Olympics. The winner got silver and then second place got bronze. Um, They basically increased the number of medals that they were giving out slash winning by introducing an additional medal to give out. Trust Trust America to go, no, we want it to be bigger, better. The winners get gold and the winners are us because we make up nine out of ten people here. Yeah, so this is really where the sort of American belief that they are the greatest sporting nation in the world starts to begin. Mm -hmm. Um, They also stole and claimed athletes from other countries. So there would be people who would be citizens of a different country, but they would pay them to play or run for the USA. Um, They would also just claim the victories of people who weren't yet citizens of the United States, but wanted to be citizens of the United States, (laughs) Um, including what turned out to be the second Australian competitor. It was uncovered years later that there was a guy called Frank Gailey who participated in the swimming events, he won three silver and one bronze, which were originally awarded to the US because he wanted to move to the US. (laughs) You know what? This sounds like if... Donald Trump ran the Olympics. Yeah, completely. (laughs) We win bigly and we win this and we got more medals than anyone. In fact, silver's not good enough. Let's make him gold. And he got gold. Oh, he's American now. He's ours. We're the best. Like, it's just like they're just writing their own narrative. Completely. And they fought as well. Any countries that came forward and said, um, that person that won was actually a citizen of our country. So we want those medals on our tally, please. The US would fight. And in the case of Frank (gasps) Gailey, they were fighting up until 2009 to switch the ownership of those medals from the US to Australia. Yeah. It's the Donald Trump Olympics. Literally in court for 90 more years. Yes. Today, in 2020, Norway are still campaigning to have two gold medals reassigned to their tally for wrestling because they were incorrectly (gasps) awarded to the United States. 
and the United States won't give it to them. Just no. give it to them. Yeah. It's from over 100 years ago. Yes. <laughs> They won't no, we won. We were the best. <gasps> oh, oh, dear. So you can just imagine how embarrassed Pierre de Coubertin was mm-hmm. by all of this. This was such a bastardization of his vision. On top of all of this, it was unsurprisingly totally sexist and very, very disgustingly racist. Um, in terms of the sexism, that did come from Pierre de Coubertin. He was adamant yeah. that no woman will ever compete in the Olympic Games because in the ancient Olympics, women certainly weren't allowed and uh, he wanted yeah. the modern Olympics to be the same. Um, he angrily allowed women to play tennis at the Paris Games in mm-hmm. 1900, but was completely opposed mm-hmm. to it. James Sullivan, of course, was also quite misogynistic and he didn't want to allow women, but he said, all right, if women really want to compete in something at the St. Louis Olympics, they can compete in archery. That was the only event that they were allowed to go in officially. They did organise. Yeah, so generous. Um, Mm. It was the only thing that they thought was lady enough alike and that women could do wearing their skirts. And you know what else they were worried about? (laughs) What if she gets her period? (laughs) I mean, can you blame them? (laughs) That's a big risk. (gasps) Oh, a surprising thing that they did do, though, they let women participate in some boxing matches, but they were so horrified by the spectacle of women boxing against each other with their fists that they, A, banned it from ever happening at an Olympics ever again, and B, told them, lol, no, this wasn't actually an Olympic event. This was just an exhibition. No one gets any medals. Once they'd started the event, they just went, oh, no, this was a mistake. Shut it down. Shut it down. Oh, because ladies can't do unladylike things. Mm. Gender dynamics. mm -hmm. And then the racism was really the most horrific part of all of this. So they had a couple of days that they called Anthropology Days at the Olympics. (gasps) Now, at the World's Fair, um, they had organised for the biggest ever human zoo to take place. And human zoos, if you've ever heard of them before, they were very popular at travelling circuses and they were essentially like a a freak show. It's a terrible way Mm. to put it, but that was the way that they saw it because there would be people from different nations who would dress in the um, traditional outfits that they would wear at home and they would also put themselves Mm -hmm. on display so that people could marvel at how different their physicality was, the colour of their skin, their hair, their facial features, all that sort of stuff. So literally on display, like, like a museum, but with live people. That's right. Yeah. And the ambition of the St. Louis World's Fair was to have the biggest human zoo ever. So they brought in 3,000 native <gasps> people from Africa, Ugh. Asia, North and South America, and they put them on display in these exhibits where they would be wearing their customary dress and performing traditional dances, etc., and just doing oh the things God. that they would normally do at home, but all very much out of context and all on display like an animal in mm-hmm. a zoo. So all of that is terrible and demeaning. And, of course, they didn't have great living conditions and they were paid very, very poorly. But then James Mm. Sullivan took it to this next level of white supremacy by organising what he called these Special Olympics Anthropology Days, which he saw as his opportunity to prove to the world his belief that white people were superior to all other races in terms of evolution. Mm -hmm. 
And so he got these people mm-hmm. that he referred to as savages to come and mm-hmm. sort of do these exhibition events uh, where he would prove that they were closer to animals than to European men. He got them to do things like climbing poles. Sometimes they were dry poles. Sometimes they were greased poles. Um, He would get them to have mud fights with each other. And then they got them to participate in some actual Olympic events, but they didn't actually explain the rules of the events to them to begin with, just to sort of prove that they're not smart enough to figure it out for themselves. So, for example, they had some sprinting races, but when the starter's pistol went off, the participants Uh were just fascinated by the gun and all just gathered around the guy who shot the pistol because they didn't understand that that was their cue to start running. They put tennis rackets in their hands, put them on a tennis court with a ball and then stood around laughing at the fact that they just had no idea what they were doing. It was... Absolutely disgraceful, completely foul. These big crowds gathered around so that they could laugh at how Mm. silly and childlike these people from different countries were and just sort of Mm. bathe in their own superiority. It was all really foul and upsetting. And this was so far from what Pierre de Coubertin had envisioned because he wanted this to be something that unified the world, not something that sort of separated in this really disgusting way. Meanwhile... Meanwhile, they're the ones shitting themselves in a marathon. Like, yeah. they're the ones who are, like, get effed, your superior. <sighs> uh, um, White and people suck. Yeah. It we was, are the worst. Mm. Like, that is just, ugh. And the whole purpose gross. of the World's Fair was really to sort of promote um, American imperialism throughout the world really it was them showing off look at all the amazing innovations that we've created and this was just another way Mm. for them to flex at this time so pierre was very glad that he hadn't gone to witness any of this himself he knew that it was going to be a lackluster olympics but he didn't think it was going to be this absolute nightmare that it turned out to be his vision definitely didn't involve racist sideshows like that and people Mm. being chased down by wild dogs and people nearly dying of internal bleeding so he had to do something pretty drastic to revive his dream because it looked like the dream was just about dead so he came up with a genius plan and he came up with olympics 2 for the same olympiad (laughs) and just did a do-over in athens like st louis had never happened just did a do-over 1906 said you know what an olympiad is a period of four years this is going to be the real games of the third olympiad and we're going to take it back to its home turf and Athens is going to show you how it's done. He called it the intercalated games, which basically just means the inserted games. This is the only time Mm -hmm. that they actually went ahead and did this, but they had to do it. Otherwise, the Olympics was going to die. So (sighs) they got their shit together. They showed the world how an event like this should be executed. They had the right sort of equipment and stadiums and they had the right sort of participants getting involved and they introduced things like the opening ceremony and the closing ceremony. So people started to get back on board with Mm. the idea. I love that America stuffed something up so bad that Mm. the rest of the world was like, we just need to pretend that never happened and do a do-over. Like, it kind of reminds me exactly what the world thinks of America in the last four years. It's like, you guys need to just, yeah, we need to erase this and start again, you idiots. Yeah. And you know what else was a Greek thing that the Greeks came up with that the Americans adopted and then totally bastardised? Democracy. 
Of course. This is such a <laughs> perfect little allegory. Um, now, the people who participated in this game, they won medals and they decided mm-hmm. to keep going with the gold, silver, bronze. They were mm-hmm. officially recognised at the time, but then historians a few decades later when they wanted to go back and tidy everything up, they just stopped recognising the medals from the intercalated games. So it's sort from of... From the take two? Yeah. Oh, it no. served its purpose to get the Olympics back on track, but technically people yeah. who participated weren't considered to be Olympians going forward. Aw. But, but do you want to guess who was sent to compete at the Athens Games in 1906, the do-over? Felix. Felix Carvajal. Felix, little Felix. Little Felix. And how did he do? So um, (laughs) he didn't actually make it to the Olympics, uh, the intercalated Did he see something shiny along the way? We can only assume. So Cuba, they were very impressed by his performance at the 1904 Olympics. And so they Mm -hmm. officially sponsored him to go over to Athens and represent their little newly formed country. Um, He got on a boat to Italy, but once he arrived in Italy, he just completely disappeared, never showed up at the games. And so everyone just assumed, oh, my God, Felix has died. How terrible. He must have just repeated what he did in New Orleans and had a bit Mm -hmm. too much to drink, ended up in some sort of fight. And now, who knows, he's probably in one of the canals of Venice right now. So they started mourning him publicly in Cuba because he was considered a bit of a national hero. They published obituaries for him. But then a few months later, he just turned up in Havana on a Spanish (laughs) steamboat um, and just acted like everything was normal and the Cubans just sort of laughed it off and let him get back to competitive running, which he ended up doing quite well. That's just Felix. (laughs) (laughs) That's just him. I bet he had the time of his life. Oh, Yeah. yeah, yeah. I um, bet he just went off and had a holiday and had a blast. Yeah, paid for by the Cuban government. Yeah. He would yeah. have so much and fun. And he just came home when he was ready. Yeah. Uh, and then once the Olympics were back on track, the um, next games were held in London in 1908 mm-hmm. and they just sort of started mm-hmm. to pick up momentum from that point onwards. So Pierre de Coubertin's vision did end up coming true. And obviously today the Olympics is a household name. It's something that we're taught about in school. Mm. Um, but we're very rarely taught about the 1904 Olympics, the ones that almost mm. derailed the thing completely um, because of American arrogance at the time, almost totally bastardizing <laughs> this vision that this little Frenchman had had. Oh, dear. Mm. American arrogance. So does that mean that this year the Olympics that were cancelled and are going to be next year, that's probably the first time that that's happened really, that they've moved, I think like, it is. In a yeah. non, had the Olympics in a non-Olympic year? Because aren't the Olympics going to be held in 2021 or 22 or something? Yeah, I think that's say? the plan at the moment. Yeah. Um, I didn't actually look into a lot of Olympics between 1908 and now. I have a feeling, though, mm. that one was cancelled because of the World War, one of the World Wars. Yeah, I think one was, and then a lot of people didn't participate in 1956 because that was the Berlin... No, not 1940. No, 1940-something. 56 <laughs> is Melbourne. Why am I thinking of... I think 56 was in Australia. But, I mean, the Olympics that was in Berlin during World War II and it was, like, the Nazi Olympics, a lot of people didn't go to that one. Yeah, when a um, black guy won one of the running races and Hitler refused to acknowledge it or something. Yes, yes, yes. And Mm. then 
Yeah. So, um, well, I feel like I've learned so many interesting Olympic facts. <laughs> this is the most I've ever talked about sports ever. Uh, it's the same. And I feel like I have lots of really, like, nifty things to tell people at a dinner party. Oh, good. That's the mission. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I won't just whip out my phone and show compilations of marathon runners exploding shit out of their pants. <laughs> I'll also say... Do you want some more classy anecdotes? Because I've got some. Let's talk about the 1904 <laughs> Olympic Games. And I'll post some pictures of the participants because their outfits are just so adorable, especially Felix Carvajal. He's one of my favourite characters Carvajal. I've ever talked about. Adorable. <laughs> and the guy, my favourite is the guy who... Um, ran into the stadium and everyone cheered, so he just accepted. (laughs) Fred Laws, legend. (laughs) That's my (laughs) favourite. Why wouldn't you? (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Brilliant. Oh, that was good. That was excellent. There you go. All right, so what's on for the rest of the week? Oh, podcast awards this weekend. So next time you hear from us, we'll either be... um, glorious gloating winners or very ungracious losers. <laughs> I guess we'll just see which way it lands, but yeah, that's, that's what's happening this weekend. Can't wait to react either way. It's going to be <laughs> a lot of fun for us and our followers. <laughs> all right. Love you all. Bye. Bye. Listener.